Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. Good morning, church. How are we doing? I got three people in the room and one of them said good, so we're good to go. I'll take those numbers. I hope you're doing well, and uh, thank you so much for joining us in worship today. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is where we're going to be jumping in, so if you would, go ahead and grab a Bible uh, or a a laptop or phone or tablet, whatever you got to um, open up God's Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We are in a study in Ecclesiastes and just enjoying walking through this study as it kind of helps us understand really uh, what, what God is doing in the world uh, when it comes to the ups and downs and when it comes to uh, the seasons of life that we, co- that we walk through, um, whether it's up on the mountaintops or it's down in the valleys, whether we're enjoying life or we're suffering through life, um, all of those things we are just experiencing on a daily basis. And so Ecclesiastes is really giving us a framework. It's giving us an understanding for how we process through life so that as we are walking through it, we can see God and see ultimately what He's doing. And as we see what He's doing, we're able to worship Him by submitting to His law, by submitting to His commands, by submitting to His leadership, by submitting to Him ultimately in order for our good and for His glory. And so as you're turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, I just want to start off by saying that there are really two main types of people in this world, or really two main uh, ways to see the world. And here's what they are. The first way, and the way the majority of the people kind of in our Western culture view the world is problems that ail mankind are external to mankind. Um, And so the problems that ail us, the nightmares that we have, the issues that haunt us, um, they are external to us and can be solved with increased education or increased technology. And so we believe that as we progressively get smarter, As we get more educated about the world around us, we will overcome all that haunts humankind. Uh, We will solve the diseases. We will get to the place where people just don't do crazy things because we are smarter. We are wiser. If we can't talk you out of it, then simply we'll just drug you out of it. Uh, So if you can't sleep, we've got something for that. Um, If you're depressed, we'll get you undepressed. If you have a disease, we'll create a pill that will handle that disease. Uh, We will learn more about the human body. This is kind of the Western uh, way of thinking things. So we will tell you to eat leafy spinach um, that's not infected by E. coli bacteria. We're going to tell you to do Pilates. We're going to tell you to exercise. We're going to tell you whatever you need to do because we've studied the human body and we are getting rid of all the external things that cause it to have uh, stress or ultimately kills it. And so we're going to get better. We're going to live longer. We're going to figure this out. We will literally learn so that we can live longer. Um, this is external. All the great enemies of mankind are just essentially external to us. And it's a wildly popular view that, that was really fired up during the Enlightenment age, where you've seen kind of the eradication of, of really the need for God because we are so smart ourselves. Uh, we don't pray like we should because we can just go take a Tylenol. Yeah, I've got a headache. Well, there's an answer for that. I'm not going to pray. I'm just going to simply take a Tylenol. And I'm not, this isn't like a knock on drugs, so just hear me out on that. But if we're sick, we go to the doctor. If we're bored, we'll go to any 
um, one of the 19 different ways to stream entertainment now, and we'll just pick something and, and we're no longer bored. Um, we can solve it. We can do it. The problems that ail humanity are external to us, and so we'll find an external solution to, to simply take over. Now, that's one view. The other view is the biblical way and the biblical point of view and what the scriptures say are that the problems are not merely external but are internal and that the problem that plagues humanity is not found outside of him alone, but it's also found inside of him. So much so that even if you solve the external ills, the inner man will still jack it all up. So much so that even if you Again, solve these external problems, we are still going to find within us internal problems that are going to mess them up. And so let me give you an example of what I'm talking about, kind of the internal versus the external. Uh, we'll use the example of just kind of the human ingenuity. Human ingenuity and the brain that God has given man has created literally wonder drugs. Um, I mean, literally, uh, for example, they've created an effective drug that can curb... Uh, the death rate of those infected with the HIV virus by like 80 to 90 percent, um, almost a cure. So we use the human ingenuity to solve an external issue to mankind, disease. However, the majority of the world, particularly the third world, will, di will die of those diseases because of greed, politics, and corruption. I mean, literally, like, take diarrhea, for example. No one loves diarrhea, no one, but we can go to the store, we can get a drug that's going to help solve those issues for us. However, in third world countries, there are literally children dying every single day from diarrhea because they don't have any access to it, and the reason why they don't have access is because of greed, politics, and corruption. Systems that are failing them um, because we are not able to get access to these types of of, of, of things and resources. So externally, we can overcome some of what plagues the universe, but in our hearts, still being corrupted, still being broken, the problem will remain. And one of the things we said last week, that we live in a post-Genesis 2 world. And that means that when the fall of man occurred, it fractured the DNA of the universe. And from that moment on, every single one of us, all of us are broken. Evil and unrighteousness is not something that we learn as we get older, but it's something that is within us from day one. And anyone who pays attention to their children like, will not argue with me here. It is in them from day one. Like, you don't have to teach your children to bite one another. Like, they will just do it. Um, you don't have to teach them that they believe everything is theirs. They just believe that, and they will fight for it. Um, they will not share unless you like discipline them to do it. And so one of our things that we talked about was how Jesus comes in and saves us from that and then sets us back on the path to Genesis 1 and 2. But I want us to take a step further than that this week uh, because here's something that I want you to think through. If everyone in this room, I'm used to saying that, if everyone outside of this room in your homes, if everyone is born broken and sinful and the world and the universe is fractured, then literally the DNA of the universe is fractured so that we are all sinners. And if we're all sinners, then not only that, but every institution on earth is run by sinners. It's run by broken people. So not only does this mess uh, take place on an individual level, but now we, we pull them all together and we then organize things around sinners. 
Not only are individuals broken, but even institutions at large can be broken. And I mean all of them, whether you're talking government, whether you're talking school systems, whether you're talking uh, churches. And I know usually like when we, when we give messages like this, um, when they get preached, we want to talk about all the institutions that are broken. We don't want to talk about the fact that churches can be broken. You might be thinking churches cannot be broken. They're filled with the people of God. Um, they are filled with the people of God. And guess what? Those people are not ultimately uh, sanctified yet. They're not ultimately glorified yet. They are still sinners and they still can literally break things, um, can literally create issues within the church. Um, and I don't really think anybody's going to argue with me on that. So this begs the question, how do we then live in a world and interact with the world where everything is tainted and the foundation of everything has been chewed away at by the brokenness of sin in the world? How do we do it? Because the truth is, we work for institutions. We work within institutions. How do we live in a world where individuals are broken as well as the institutions the individuals create? How do we do it? Well, this is what Solomon is going to be leading us in today as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 8. He's going to help us understand why and, and how we kind of navigate the institutions and then also kind of the response to that. What is his wisdom to us, his advice to us on how we should kind of conduct ourselves within the fact that not only are we broken, but also our institutions are broken, even relationships. So Ecclesiastes chapter 8, starting in verse 1. He says this, Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. So how do we walk in a fallen world? He starts out like this, The light of Christ is what shines in the heart of men. We are transformed, we are changed, we become believers in Christ. As we see this, a man's wisdom... And what do we know as wisdom? The wisdom that comes from man is folly. But the wisdom that comes from Christ is what creates the transformation within us. It's what actually makes our face shine. And it's also what actually removes the hardness from us. And as he talks about in Ezekiel 32, as he talks about in Jeremiah 32, that God removes the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, gives us a heart that is living and active because his word is within us. And so it removes that hardness and it actually brings transformation for us. It is what gives us a face that shines. And so the first thing that we need to see here out of this verse is that Christ is the light that shines within the hearts of us. And it's what transforms us. It's what actually allows us to be able to shine. And the hardness of our face is changed. And then he goes on in verse 2. He's going to use government to kind of see um, how we are to, to navigate this. He says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now, Solomon says we have a heart. Um, we have our heart awakened to the reality of Jesus Christ. Here's the first rule, the first kind of idea of living in a fallen, broken world. Here's what he says. Number one, be careful who you submit to. Be careful who you submit to. There's an element of submission in everyone's life. I don't care who you are. You submit to your boss. If you're married, there's an element of mutual submission that occurs in marriage. Even friendship at a deep level requires that there be this risk-oriented submission for that friendship to thrive. 
You have to let yourself be known and then take the risk of either being betrayed, um, pummeled, or even taken advantage of in relationships. So be careful who you submit to. Be careful who you give power to. Be careful who you give influence to. Be careful who you, to use a Texas phrase for Wayland, hitch your wagon to. He's going to say, be careful who you pair up with. Be careful who you join your life with. Be careful who you marry. Be careful who you're friends with. Be careful who you work for. Pay attention to who you're giving influence to in your life. Pay attention to this. Why? Why is it such a big deal to be careful who you're submitting to, who you're giving influence to, who you're giving power to? Well, he's going to tell you right out of the gate. Look at the next two verses. Verse 3. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and, he, um, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Here's what he's saying here. Be careful who you submit to, because once you've submitted to it, you're a part of it, and it might be out of your control. Uh, and if you're not careful, you could get wooed away from what is right if not outright, be a part of something God calls evil. Be careful who you submit to. Be careful who you give power to. Be careful who you give influence to. Because in the end, you might find yourself a part of something God calls evil. Wicked. Something that displeases Him. Be careful who you submit to because once you submit to them, you're a part of an institution or an organization that you don't sit at the top of, that you don't have any control over. For me, I think about this church, and I ask myself the question, is this a place that I can submit my life to? And yes, you might be thinking, well, you planted the church, and so you're, you're literally the one who signed up for this. But even planting the church, it can still become something. Um, as we bring on more leaders, as we bring on more elders, as we bring on staff, as we bring on members, and as we are a congregation, a body of believers, it's easy for us to shift and get into certain um, areas of, of influence or direction that, again, I still want to often ask myself, is this something that I want to give myself over to? Is this something that I'm saying I'm in? And if the answer is no, if we're not after a Holy Spirit-filled community that is biblically functioning, if we're not after that, and if we shift at any point and we were to say we want to be a church of 5,000, we want to build a building that can be seen from the moon, uh, we don't want to do overseas missions, we want to do, what we want to do is mission just here with ourselves, people that look like us, spending our money here. If that's what we want, then I'm out. I'll, we'll go plant another church and we'll try to start it over again. And we'll try to have better systems of structure in place so that it protects us from straying in the future at some point. So if I walk in and that's what we've become, I don't want to give my life over to that. I want to make sure that I'm submitting my life to something that again is lifting up the cause of Christ. That I can be faithful to what Christ has asked of me and join myself up to that. So what he's saying is, be careful who you submit to. Be careful who you hit your wagon to. Be careful lest you be part of something that God calls evil. Lest you get wooed away and sucked into a way of life that's not biblical or right uh, before God. Which leads us to the next piece. And this is so important, and I'm kind of nervous of, 
um, because I know the lack of the role of the Bible in so many of our lives. And I say that convictingly because I know not, not only for you, but also for me, um, of just the fact that we, we place our Bible to the side and we get to it when we need advice, but we don't view it as the source of our life when it comes to navigating life, when it comes to knowing who God has created us to be and what he ultimately wants for us. But I want you to look at what's next here. He's going to say this. Be cautious of, again, who you join yourself up with. Be cautious of who you submit to and give influence to. Look in verse 5. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him. Alright, so here the scriptures are going to say that you need to know who you are, and you need to know what Christ has asked of you before you ever get started. So that by knowing in the beginning what Christ has asked of you, the path of right and wrong and what you'll be involved in and what you won't be involved in are set before they ever come up. Know who you are. Know what Jesus has asked of you. Know what the gospel means in your life so that as you walk through life, the right direction, the right time, the right thing will be known by you because you know who Christ is and you know what his design is for your life. As you walk with the Christian community, ask, uh, or as you ask for advice, as you pray with one another, as you submit to the things of God, right and wrong and the direction of life are set because you knew who you were before the alarm clock went off that morning. That's why getting in God's word and knowing God through the scriptures because he reveals who you are and he reveals who he is allows you to be able to know who you are, know who he is. And as you walk through life and as you're kind of contemplating and discerning and praying through what decision to make and whether it's the right or wrong decision, you will know what to make before the, the opportunity has ever even presented itself. You've got to know who you are and what Christ has asked of you and what it means to be redeemed, and what it means to be a believer in Jesus. You need to know that before you ever get started, lest you get into a situation that you don't know what to do with. He says, those who follow the commands of God know no evil deed. The reason why they know no evil deed is because they're following the commands of God. They are ingraining themselves within the word of God. They are literally, as David says, they are dwelling in the house of the Lord all the days of their life. They are meditating on his word day and night because they know only through that lens will they be able to rightly navigate life, to be able to see God and to be able to see themselves, and to be able to see the institutions around them, to be able to see the authorities around them, and be able to hitch themselves to, connect themselves to the right ones that are going to lead to their joy and God's glory. And then that's going to lead us into the second idea that is such an important thing to know, both inside the church as well as outside the church. We'll start with outside the church, starting in verse 7. For he does not know what it is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. So again, be careful who you submit to. Be careful who you give power to, lest you're sucked into what is called evil before God. Know who you are when you get started. And here's what he's going to say. Here's what I love about Solomon. 
He's always going to kind of take it right back down to just the grittiest level possible. He says this, even if you're careful, even if you're careful who you submit to, and you know exactly who God's commanded you to be, sometimes it's still going to go bad for you. I'm so grateful that he does this because this is the exact opposite of what most of us hear in church, isn't it? Like, he's like, listen, do what you know is right. Submit and be obedient to Christ. Be careful who you hit your wagon to. But in the end, it's a lot like war. And here's what he means. If you've ever watched anything on television whether, uh, where they're training soldiers to go fight, a lot of times they'll say, look to the person on your left or right. One of you will not be here when this is over. And yet, every single one of them get the same training. They get the same amount of resources. They get the same amount of knowledge. They get the same amount of skill sets. And yet, they're going to go out and have no control over whether or not they live or die. This is exactly what he's saying to us in this moment right now. Hey man, no person controls the power of life and death. No one can decide to retain his own spirit. In the end, be obedient to Christ and trust that God is in control. And then he moves on to this next idea that I want to spend some time talking with you about. Verse 9. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Here's what he's saying here. And, and just as quick as I can hit this one, he says this. Don't be naive. Your heroes are sinful people too. There are several heroes um, of faith in my life, guys that I look up to and just so love their ministries. One that I know personally is my former youth pastor, uh, who's now lead pastor of my home church back in Tennessee, Ashley Mofield. Um, he gave me so much access to biblical knowledge and understanding, to a way of life in Christianity. I mean, this is the person, second to none, who taught me Jesus more than anybody um, who is alive right now. I consider him one of my great heroes. Uh, he gave me, again, access to books and education, biblically, uh, biblical scholarly resources, and through those resources, I then discovered people like Tim Keller, John Piper, Matt Chandler, John Stott, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, Eugene Peterson, just guys that every single one of them, at some point or another, I could say something about their life and ministry where it would go something like this. I wish I was like them. I wish I was like them. I wish I preached like them. I wish I prayed like them. I wish I reasoned like them. I wish I was um, uh, as educated as them. Now these guys, in a, in a lot, just my opinion, are unreal. I mean, they're brilliant, unreal men who are heroes of mine. But in the end, the things that they have accomplished and the people that they are due, um, that they are, are due to the gracious power and work of Christ in them. That's it. They're brilliant because of Christ alone. And they're due no praise in and of themselves. We have to get into the habit of praising God for what God does in men and women instead of praising men and women for themselves. Because we've created this kind of quasi-Christian like Christian, 
um, subculture, Hollywood culture that's built around large church pastors who are dynamic um, communicators. And so we kind of build this ideology around them and exalt them up on pedestals, and they're doomed to disappoint us. Like, take John Piper, for example. Since he was in high school, he wanted to be in a room by himself reading C.S. Lewis and breaking down the collective works of Jonathan Edwards. Like, as a 17-year-old, that's what he wanted to do. What are you doing this Friday, John? Well, I think I'm going to read Religious Affections. It's several hundred years old, but I'm into it. Like, that's John Piper. Like, when I was 17 years old, I was taking my dad's car that had lights and sirens and, like, literally doing donuts in people's yard trying to pretend that I was the police in order to crash and bash parties. Like, that's what I was doing when I was 17 years old. And I think my dad might be listening to this. Um, but that's okay. It's neither here nor there. Who created us to be the way we are? It's not to our credit. It's to God's credit. It's to His credit we have the minds we have and we have the hearts we have and we have the affections that we have. You've got to be monumentally careful here lest we become blasphemers. Lest we become kind of the Shaquille O'Neal celebrating dunking a basketball at seven feet one inches. Like, you should be able to dunk a basketball at that. That should not marvel any one of us. So then what you have here and I want to always attack our culture, and I'm not talking culture at large, I'm talking Christian culture. What you end up getting then is a plethora of how-to books built off of uh, men and women's experiences rather than the preeminence of Christ and the sufficiency of the Scriptures. And churches boil down to, uh, let me tell you how it works. Process built off of men and women's personalities rather than the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And, and honestly, it's become a train wreck out there. It's a train wreck out there. I mean, right now, in this pandemic that we're experiencing, we are getting bombarded with how-tos on navigating church in a pandemic. When at the end of the day, what is still preeminent is Christ and the sufficiency of His Scriptures. So yes, we're going to stream it via technology, and there's how-tos to do that. But at the end of the day, the only way that the church is going to continue to grow is through the Word of God and Christ being living and active in His Word and the proclamation of His Word getting embedded into the minds and the hearts of the people, whether it's prayed, whether it's sung, whether it's preached, whether it's meditated on, whether it's read, whether it's studied, whatever it looks like, that's the only way in which the church of Christ is going to continue to expand is by Him expanding it. Christ is the one who said, I will build my church. It's not through the best way to stream. It's not through the best way to do groups online. Those are merely tools. But the thing that's going to continue to grow us and mature us ultimately is going to be Christ and the sufficiency of His Scriptures. So hear me. I'm planning on being here um, at least another 35 to 40 more years as the pastor. In fact, I might retire earlier and just make life miserable for the next 30-year-old that we turn it over to. But here's the reality. I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to disappoint you. I don't want to, but I'm going to disappoint you on an individual level. You're going to want to get a hold of me, and you're not going to be able to. You're going to have expectations of me that are impossible to fulfill. 
I'm going to disappoint you. And eventually I'm going to mess up in some way that maybe we didn't prepare for this or we didn't plan enough for this. I mean, probably some of you right now are thinking uh, this new live stream is disappointing because I like Google Meet. We've always done it that way. Like you're already having an issue with the change of four weeks moving to this idea. We're still working it out. And so some of you, we might fail you in this way. And some of you might be thinking, finally, you are actually at something that I enjoy now watching. You've been failing me for the last four or five weeks. We're not going to please everybody. We're going to fail somebody. And that's just reality because, again, institutions, organizations are full of people who are broken. Now, we're very, very busy building accountability stations and authority over us. Again, this is one of the reasons why we are bringing on more elders is because at the end of the day, I don't want this to be ruled by one person, nor does it need to be ruled by one person. It needs to be led by a group of people that is giving and providing accountability so that for the long haul, we're able to lead out and be faithful to God and what Christ is ultimately doing. So that it's not based around one person but that it's around a movement of people who are finding Christ to be their sufficiency and Him alone. Now, how do we live in this? How do we function in this, world, this fallen world? Go to verse 11. And this one's kind of going to sound interesting. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous." I said that this also is vanity. All right. Because he's saying that there's this thing that happens here that you absolutely should see. He says that there are some things that seem to be meant for the wicked that the righteous are actually enduring. And then there are gifts that should come to the righteous that the wicked people are actually enduring or gaining. And here's the reality that I kind of see. I feel like I see this all over the world. And here's what he says. Sometimes wicked, wickedness will happen a hundred times before God ever gets involved. Before God ever actually gives them what they deserve. Be careful how you see the world. Here's, a, here's his advice. He says, you're going to see someone at work. You're going to see someone at home. You're going to see someone at play. You're going to see someone do something unrighteous, wicked. And do you know what's going to happen to them? Nothing. In fact, they're probably going to gain from it. They're going to get some money. They're going to get more friends because typically friends accompany money. They're going to do something else that the scriptures call wicked, that God would call wicked, and they're going to get money out of it. They're going to get new cars out of it. They're going to get a bigger house out of it. They're going to get more friends out of it. They're going to get this membership at this golf club. Like They're going to continue to gain from doing something that we would consider wicked. And you will see a righteous man do what is right before God, and maybe he goes broke. Like, I know that's not the popular church story. 
Like most of the time people give examples in church that's kind of more like this. I mean, I only had $81 in my bank account and I needed to tithe, but I also needed to eat. And so I wrote the tithe check for $81 and guess what happened? Uh, my Aunt Sally died and then left me uh, her estate and all of a sudden $81 came right back into my bank account as soon as I needed to go buy groceries. Praise God for His faithfulness. That's the typical stories that you hear in church. What people don't hear in church is, man, I wanted to be generous and joyful and sacrifice my finances. And so I gave $81 to the church. It was all I had. And then I didn't eat for a month. Like, no one talks about those stories. But those are realities. Those are realities within our world. Don't be deceived. Don't buy. This is why the prosperity gospel was so, um, so not only wicked, but, but a danger to the church and a danger to the Christian culture. Wickedness doesn't cost. Don't buy into that lie. Don't buy into what you see and what you judge as success. Once again, this is why I find the prosperity gospel so disturbing on so many levels. One more bit of advice he has for us, and it's going to be good for us to hear it. Verse 15. I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I, admi- when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is a great text. It's hard, but it's a great text. Here's what he says. Once you have been careful who you submit to, have learned from the beginning what God has commanded of us in the Gospels. We have not created anyone as preeminent, but Christ alone. And we have done all that Christ has asked of us. We're following His his commands. We have forgiven. We have asked for forgiveness. We have prayed. We have laid it down at the feet of Christ. We have fought off the root of bitterness. We, We have done all that Christ has asked of us. He says this. Eat, drink, laugh, trust God, and go to bed. That's what He's telling us. That's the advice He's giving us as we kind of contemplate everything that he's just spoken to us eat drink laugh trust god and go to bed because what else can you do how do you live in a fallen world he sums it up in these last five verses submit to the truths of god and the gospel of christ be obedient to his commands and when you've done all that he's asked then just eat drink and laugh because the rest is in his hands i want to ask you just some questions here because It doesn't do any good for us to hear Scripture but not know how it applies to us. It doesn't do any good to cognitively grasp some concepts from the Bible. We need the Lord to speak to us and speak to our hearts. So I wanted to take this out of the abstract and kind of make it more personal for us. So I want you to think about these questions. Are you and do you have an area of your life right now that you feel is weighty and hard? that it's keeping you up at night. Maybe a situation at work, maybe a situation at home, maybe you're worried about the, um, um, 
the situation with your job right now during this pandemic, whether you'll continue to have a job or not. And if you're not going to have a job, what job are you going to be able to find? How are you going to provide for your family? You, you're kind of that person that feels like I am giving the $81 and I'm not seeing God be faithful to me right now on the back end. Like, what does this look like? Do you have a relationship that's fractured? Do you make decisions that are pulling against what you know is right? Do you have some weight, some pressure, something on your heart, on your mind right now? Let me ask you some more questions. Have you done all that Christ has asked of you? Have you been obedient to all that Christ has asked of you? Have you asked for forgiveness? Have you owned what you're responsible for? Have you fought off a root of bitterness in this season? Have you prayed? Have you brought these anxieties and the, these burdens and these convictions and these weight? Have you brought it to the feet of Jesus? Have you done what is required of you biblically, spiritually? Have you done what Christ has asked of you? And listen, right now, you, you need to block out of, your hot, out of your head, yeah, but they, as if it's something external. This is something internal. We're not assessing blame or putting blame on anyone else. We're asking the question, have I? Have I done what Christ has asked of me? Now, if the answer is no, I haven't done this. I haven't done what Christ wants me to. No, I haven't done this, and I know what Christ wants me to. Well, then we, we know what the rest of the day is going to look like then. Some point this week, whether it's today, tomorrow, the next day. We have to make that right. We need to be obedient to the commands of Christ. And it's different on two levels of people here. If you're a non-believer and you're feeling the weight of these things, yeah, this world is broken, yeah, I'm broken, guess what? There's actually nothing that you can do to make it right. What you need to do in this moment right now is realize that Christ is again, preeminent, and that Christ is the only one sufficient to offer you forgiveness and to remove the weight, to remove the sin from your life. And so you merely just need to understand that Christ is the Savior, that He lived the life that you could not live, that He died the death that you deserved because you could not live a perfect life, and that when He rose three days later, He guaranteed for us that we would also be risen with Him in a process of being sanctified, being made more holy like Christ is, and that one day He would glorify us, remove all of our sin, all of our junk, all of our mess, and that we would for eternity be risen with Him in a state of glory where we will be wiped of our tears, wiped of our pain, forgiven of all that ails us both externally and internally, and will be in a right relationship with Him. That's what you need to do if you're not a believer. Believe the gospel. Believe the good news that Christ has brought to us. If you are a believer, and that Christ has come into your life, and you live under that banner, but yet in this life right now, you're living through this posture of, I'm not going to obey His commands. Like, here's the reality is, we are still submitting our lives to something. When you're a non-believer, you're submitting your life to the flesh and evil and sin. 
When we become believers, we're submitting our lives to Him. And so we're giving our lives over to Him to where we now want to obey His commands, that we want to follow His design, that we're not trying to figure this out again within ourselves and try to externally uh, manipulate the program to figure out how we can make ourselves better. No, we are submitting ourselves to Christ so that Christ makes us more like Him, that He makes us better. And the way that he makes us better is, again, he is calling us, drawing us to his word, drawing us to prayer. And it primarily lands on those two things, prayer and the word of God. That we're communicating with the Spirit of God. That the Spirit of God is communicating to the Father on our behalf because we don't know what to pray for. We're fallen. We're sinful. He's praying on our behalf. But here's the reality is we neglect that on a daily basis. Do we not? We neglect it. We neglect his word that he's called us to. We neglect the prayer that he's called us to. And those are the primary ways in which he has called us to be sanctified, to grow in the gospel, to grow in the likeness of Jesus. And so what do you need to do? You need to come back to what he's called you to. You need to submit to the things that he's called you to. And I'm not going to give you like a how to pray or how to study. Just get into it. Just sit down and start talking to God. And the beauty in scriptures that we see in Romans 8 is that, again, when you don't know how to pray, that's great. Because the Holy Spirit's role is to shot block your bad prayers and to send up good prayers to the Lord so that he actually then provides you what you would be praying for if you knew what God knew. I can't take that. That's a Tim Keller quote. But that's what we would be doing. And if we knew what God knew in his mind, as he wrote a book for us, 66 books, as he wrote this and inspired it and gave it to us, if we knew what he knew and put it in the book that he gave to us, we would daily be immersing ourselves in it. Because we know that through that is the way in which we understand God, that we know him, that we see how he works and how he's moving, that we see that he has in Scripture, operated in times in our history that are very similar to what we're living through right now. That this has not surprised him or shocked him in any way. That he's not up there right now trying to search Google on how is the best way to stream something live. God's not doing that. He's not shocked. He's not surprised. So if the answer is no, then we know what we need to do. And if your answer is yes, I have done everything that the scriptures have asked of me, that Christ has asked of me, then the scriptures say, call your friends today. Call your friends, set up a computer on your dinner table where you can eat and hang out and enjoy one another. Enjoy. Enjoy life. And, and here's one of the realities is that enjoying life and praying and being invested in God's word, abiding in Christ through those, um, those avenues that he's gifted us with, those things are linked and connected. You can never fully enjoy the eating and the drinking and the community and the fellowship of the saints when you're disconnected from abiding in Christ. It's just not a reality. But when you're abiding in Christ and you're finding him all sufficient and preeminent in all things, these things are merely add-ons. When we're finding our joy and satisfaction in Christ alone 
and then we get to eat and drink and be merry. We get to do those things as an overflow of our joy, which in turn frees us. I mean, the most free people right now should be the believers who during this pandemic, during this time, during this season, are not worried, are not anxious, because they know God is looking at the birds of the heaven, they're looking at the birds of the air, they're looking, he's looking at the flowers on the ground, he's looking at these things that he's clothed and provided for, and he's saying, I value you much more than I value those things, I will take care of you, I will provide for you, no matter what is going on. So we should not be worried. We should not be anxious. And if you are anxious, I'm not saying that you should not be anxious in that. But what I am saying is that you should take that anxiety and you should, you should balance it with the truth and knowledge of God. That we're not trying to downplay your, your anxiety right now. But when we bring in the sovereignty of God and when we bring in the goodness of God, to his children, and the love that he lavishes on us, it allows us in the midst of that anxiety to counterweight it with his truth and his goodness so that we can together with Christ press on through whatever the situation is so that in that situation we can be free and we can know and trust that God is taking care of us, that he's providing for us, that he's loving us through it. That even if during that time he doesn't give us the $81, we know that we don't live by um, bread alone. We don't live by material resources, but we live and are satisfied in Christ alone and in his word. And if we don't have enough, we go to his word. We go to his word. And that's what we need to do this week. That's the only way that we're going to be provided wisdom. As we navigate who we submit our lives to, is knowing who we are and knowing who Christ is. And the best way to know who you are is to pray to God because it reveals the affections of your heart. And the best way to know who God is is to go to his word as he's revealed himself to us in his scriptures. And we get to know him. We get to know him and we let both of those things ingrain itself within our heart and our minds and our souls and our spirits. And we become like Christ. We become like Christ. And we're unwavered regardless of the season that we're walking through. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. And we thank you so much that you have provided for us an opportunity to see your word, to read your word, to study your word, to meditate on your word day and night. And that as we are guided in your good news, I pray that it embeds itself within our hearts and in our minds. And God, as we pray to you, as we get on our hands, our knees, that we would hear from you. And that we would begin to feel the anxieties of our hearts right now, the anxieties of our minds right now. That we would feel those things get lighter because the weight of that is beginning to counterbalance because of your goodness to us, your truth 
that is poured out to us. May we know you and what you're doing as we walk through uncertain, unprecedented times. We need you, Jesus. Bring us back to you today. For it's in your good name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at